0: Um, just a couple things to be praying for. One is what I've been saying every week, be praying for the other half of your church family that's not here. A lot of people on the road, a lot of people still a little bit uncomfortable coming into a setting like this. Um, maybe they're not able to. And so just be praying for them because uh, the big concern is people becoming very disconnected and legacy as a whole becoming very fragmented over the next few months. And so please be praying for that. Also, I want you to keep praying for Waylon. Um, you probably saw this on social media the other day. We've been praying for Waylon Haney. He's an 8-month-old baby. He's, uh, the, the parents are here. They're Caleb and, and uh, Hannah. And he had some, just to be very uh, big picture, he had some gut problems and has had two surgeries just in the last maybe 72 hours or so. Maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, and right now he is stable and the trajectory looks good. Everyone is hopeful. But please just be praying for him in the hospital. Be praying for mom and dad too, right? These, these are tough times for mom and dad. They're not sleeping well. They're kind of ships passing in the night. It's going to be rare for them to be at the same place at the same time. So be praying for Caleb. Be praying for Hannah. And man, I'm, I'm really believing that this week we're going to get some good news from that. But please just be praying um, for that family. But hey, ready to get into this. If you have a Bible or a device, let's go to Philippians 4. And I know what you're thinking. Are we ever getting out of this book? This is, I think, the 13th sermon in this book. I am in no hurry to get out of it, though. Philippians 4. I don't know if you know this about my family, but my bride, she loves puzzles, but only on vacations. Okay? It's a little weird thing. It's a quirk. She loves puzzles. I could just visually see her decompress it's very calming for her. We don't have puzzles at the house, though. She just does them when we go out of town on trips. And so whenever we travel somewhere, one whole table or desk has been designated as the, the puzzle table. right? And she just loves to kind of hover over there, a little piece here, a little piece there. Sometimes she'll give a few hours to it. Me, not so much. Not a puzzle guy at all, in fact. I had a couple bad experiences with puzzles growing up. Um, I'd, I'd get to the very end of a puzzle and then one of my moron roommates would steal the last 10 pieces or throw them away or hide them and maybe it's my Enneagram number or something but I have a hard time walking past a puzzle with a lot of missing pieces there. It just kind of unnerves me so I just don't do them anymore just to be honest. I'm not a puzzle guy. But I do think that an incomplete puzzle really best describes how many people feel. Almost whole, Almost complete, but still fragmented. Still missing some pieces. Not integrated totally. I think today is going to be helpful for you if you find yourself cluttered and fragmented and disorganized and discombobulated mentally. I think it's going to be helpful for you. I think today is going to be helpful as we look through the Bible if you feel totally incomplete, without peace. In fact, if you feel like you are not Full of peace, but a puzzle with missing pieces. I think the Bible's going to serve you well today. You might not know this, but when we pick a book of the Bible to travel through as a church, um, and, and sometimes it's not always a book of the Bible. Sometimes it's a big topic with a lot of really key passages that we can go deep on as we look at a topic. When we do that, we put a lot of time and prayer into what we're gonna do next. Sometimes taking months. We're already working on the next direction. I'm actually already looking at material for next year. We put a lot of effort and energy into it. We ask some questions. Where are our people? Where are we headed as a, as a church? What do our people need? We pray over these things. We're, like I said, we're doing this now. All that being said, Philippians wasn't on the docket for us. It's probably important for you guys to know this. We were planning on doing Exodus, (laughs) another great book. But when COVID-19 came, we kind of hit delete on those plans and pushed it off to the side, even though we'd already done quite a bit of work on the book of Exodus. And that's because the big paramount theme in Paul's letter to the Philippian church is that you can have peace and you can have joy at all times, in all circumstances. We felt like we needed that as a church. Last week, Paul spoke to our anxious minds and our anxious hearts which I feel like we really needed. We saw how we can experience not just a piece of God, but literally a piece that is supernatural that bends logic, what we would call logic, what we would call common sense. It would be a piece that we couldn't render or manufacture with our own minds or our own power. It would come to us. And today, Paul is actually in the same train of thought by addressing what we think about. What we think about. Like where we set the 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 eyes of our imagination on? What do we ponder? What do we consider deeply? You see, a scattered mind, a puzzle with missing pieces, it ponders the wrong things a lot of times, and that will just accelerate anxiety. When we're unable to think for long, deep moments in a straight line it increases the amount of anxiety and nervousness we have. And this couldn't be any more true than it is in our society today, which is very up-tempo and very scattered and fragmented anyway. I mean, we live in an on-demand world where you could haphazardly hop into any kind of media at any time that's going in any direction. You, You at any moment could be found with multiple streams and threads scrolling on multiple devices with multiple tabs running on multiple apps. And to add to the complexity and to add to the anxiety of this, this feeling of not knowing what's going on makes us nervous, which is why you have notifications set on your phone. I bet there's probably be 50 notifications that will go off silently in your pocket today before I'm even finished with this sermon, right? I mean, we, we, we want these notifications to alert us that something is happening that we don't want to miss. We want to be rescued from irrelevancy, rescued from being out of the know. We want to be a people who are in the know. So we always are, hyper-connected to what's going on around us, but not so connected with what's going on inside of us, or disconnected with what's going on between us and the Lord, us and those around us, us and what's gonna happen in front of us. So over time, living this up-tempo life, we start to lose our feel for quietude, for stillness, for an attentive stillness. We lose the sense of touch to step off the track and consider the big picture. To think long-term and long lines. To see what God is doing globally, where we fit in the midst of it. We lose the stomach for maybe looking at our past and auditing what got us to where we're at and maybe dreaming for the future. Because thinking deeply has been replaced with reacting quickly. And we've made an idol out of immediacy, wanting what we want now, with what's going on around us now being the most important thing in our world. Now listen, I know I sound like my great-grandpa right now. I don't hate our on-demand world. I like it. It's helpful. It's convenient. It has a lot of benefits. But I found that over time, I've become more fragmented. I've become more disconnected, focused on small things happening in a small universe with small packets of information coming in all at the same time from a thousand different directions. And I'm probably correct in guessing you've got the same thing going on with you as well. I mean, have you noticed that there's a lot of people going on social media sabbaticals right now? I don't hate that. I like it. They're stepping off the track, and they're trying to gain some perspective. Because if you're in the know all the time with our small little universe, your universe shrinks. Your soul shrinks a little bit. Because you're confined to this tiny little confine where the tiniest little things become the biggest thing in your world. And then we just wait for the latest viral hashtag. We wait for the most cutting-edge thing. We're looking for what's immediate and passing. And when we do that, we cannot dwell on what is eternal. Our universe shrinks, and our minds kind of do what toddlers' minds do. They just capture the next running thought that comes right by. I mean, forget toddlers. I mean, when I was 16, the most important things in my world were my stupid car stereo, my my best friend, and whatever minimum wage job I had at the time. That's how small my universe was. And I think for a lot of us in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, our universe hasn't grown that much. I mean, if you consider that your news app, whichever one you choose to use, it has ad placements with the idea that you will not read past the third paragraph. We're not really a people that read the news. We read the headlines to news, right? We bolt from headline to headline to headline. But if it's, a, if it's a, a provocative or a capturing headline, you might read a paragraph two, maybe three. Look at where the ads are. They already know you're going to do that. Even when they designed Twitter, the heavily resourced engineers that would build slot machines because they want to replicate the allure of scrolling down, pulling down to see if something new is going to pop up on the screen. We are far, far more than the Philippian church in a struggle for a holistic mind, for a complete mind. We struggle with fragmentation. We struggle with being detached. Far, far more than these believers that Paul is writing to, we struggle carrying a thought very far without dumping it for the very next thought. There's an author, his name is Neil Postman. He calls this the now this mode of discourse. Now this. And then when you're halfway done thinking about it, you pick up something else. Now this. And you get 20% into considering that. Now this. Always something new. And that's how we've trained our minds we, we don't carry thoughts from one parcel of time to the next parcel of time. We dump it and pick up a new thought. That's why it's easy for us to like, pick up in the phone and, and, and read whatever the news app is that you happen to read. And then whenever you're done with that, you can quickly, I don't know, scroll through a TikTok compilation. Or you could find a YouTube video on how to clean the dashboard of your car while you were commenting on your cousin's, aunt's, baby pictures. I don't even know if that works out. But someone's baby pictures that you don't even know or love, right? Right? All at the same time where you're checking your stocks, you're checking the weather, you're checking your inbox and you're grooming your Spotify account in the background. And you can do all of that at the same time within about five minutes. We're very detached. Again, I'm not mad at today. It's not today's fault. I'm definitely not hoping to go back to yesterday. I like the convenience, you do too. But it begs the question, how should we think today as a church? As Christians, those who love Jesus, How should we think today? What should we set our minds on? How deeply? Does what we think about matter? Because we do know this, the the now this way of thinking, it's not able to gain perspective. It can't audit your heart. It can't painfully think, painfully deep. Can't consider or ponder, can't meditate, long thoughts, Disappear and they have to make room for thoughts that we could fit into an Instagram story. Quick, in, out, next. Now this, now this, now this. This has ramifications for us. It has an effect on us, maybe deeper than what we know. How you think matters. What you think on matters. It matters. This passage is helpful. Let's look at Philippians 4. Philippians 4, we're getting towards the end. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. This is going to be the word of the Lord for us. And we're going to find Christ in this passage. And I think he's going to be more beautiful and textured in your eyes because of reading a passage like this. It says this. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we went over that last week. But then he goes on. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And we're only going to focus on one aspect of this passage today. There's a lot in that passage. I just want to focus on what our minds are doing, right? Now, now, when you read peace in a passage like this, it's important for you to know the meaning of that word is grabbed from the Old Testament. The origin for this word peace isn't found uh, in, in what we call peace today. When we say peace, we think absence of war, absence of aggression, tranquility, and, it, and it's not it's not not those things but it's much more. The Old Testament way of referring to peace was the word shalom which you probably hear people say from time to time or they'll use as an email signature or something like that. Shalom just means this, being complete. wholeness, being integrated, not disintegrated, not incomplete, but whole. It's a puzzle with all of its pieces. A person at peace is a satisfied one, a content one, because they're not missing anything. They're full. And not just complete, but complete and whole in every direction with themselves, with the Lord, with their neighbor. But let me ask you, does this describe you? Did you come in here whole? Did you come in here as a puzzle with all of its pieces or missing some? Were you fragmented? Disorganized, detached, chaotic? Friends, we need this peace, not just to feel better either. We need it to be good missionaries. We need peace like this to missionary, to be a missionary, not just it's productive, but when it's in the shape of Jesus. I mean, Christ was the most fulfilled person who ever lived, the most integrated, the most complete, the most connected. He was never fragmented or cluttered, never anxiously in doubt, never unsatisfied, never discontent. And when Jesus sends you and me on mission, he sends us like he came himself. That's in John 20. We'll get to it in a second. But that means a lot of things. And we don't even have time to go into all the different ways in which we are missionaries like Christ. But like Christ, we cross great great distances to minister to the people that we are missionaries to, right? Like Christ, the people that we go to don't look like us. Like Christ, the people that we go to don't deserve what we're giving. Like Christ coming to us, they didn't even ask for it when we go to them. Just like Christ coming to us, whenever we go to people, it will always be good missionaries, good mission, will always be at a deficit of self for the empowerment of someone else. It will always be from the impoverishing of me for the, for the making you wealthy. That is the proper dimension and shape of mission. And, that is, and this is where we get it, because it's in the shape of Christ, and that's how Christ was sent. We go in the power of the Holy Spirit because that's how Christ was sent to us, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But here we have another one. He sends us on mission as he himself was sent and that is with the peace of the Father. He came in peace. He came in peace. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. But friends, listen, if we're fragmented, If we have no shalom, if we're distracted, discombobulated, anxious, detached, nervous, what is it exactly that we're supposed to be handing out to a nervous world? An incomplete world, a world that has anything but peace. Have you ever felt off-center or fake or disingenuous when you tell somebody else about how God is full of peace and how God is a God of peace and how there is peace for those. Because you know it accurately, theologically, but you've never experienced it, right? It's theoretical to you, but it's not experiential. So you might walk away from those moments feeling like, ah, I mean, I know that's true, but it's not really true. Listen, that's why whenever I use words like fascinated, that's why, it's a difficult, that's why it's a difficult word for us when I say that we are a gospel-fascinated church. You see, Paul isn't giving us pointers here, right? He's discipling us to be whole, to be complete, to be satisfied, not to just feel better, but to be helpful to a broken world. This is a demanding text. It's full of demand. It's full of imperatives. And oddly enough, oddly enough, Your experience of Christ, your enjoyment of Jesus, it's bigger than just you. I know that sounds odd. You being fascinated with Jesus, you being enamored with the gospel, you being content, and you being satisfied is bigger than just you. Because Legacy Church, whether we are all here or only two of us are here, listen, we are only as powerful as our individuals are satisfied. We're only as effective as missionaries in a church as much as our people are content, whole, complete. The number one thing I think Knoxville needs from us as a church is to experience God's peace, to enjoy Christ. That's where we came with our value of gospel fascinated. We just had a a partnership class this morning and we kind of cruised through the first three values. We have lots of things that are valuable to us as a church, but our primary values, gospel fascination, communal authenticity, missional activity. Gospel, community, mission. Those are the big three. But the stump of the tree is gospel fascination. Fascination though, that word. Enamored. Drawn to. All it means is that we enjoy the reality of Jesus, not just to save us, but to sustain us and to satisfy us in every aspect of life. To be fascinated, to have an ever-increasing imagination and appreciation and joy over what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus. So what this means is, is the gospel is not a dusty story that when we're done reading it, we put back on the shelf next to books full of other stories. It leads us every day. We're not waiting just for Jesus to come back. We wait for him every morning, every moment, because he's a companion to us. He's the hero that walks alongside us. He's our king. He's our friend. He's our lover. He's not just a character in our Bible. I bump into people in this city all the time. I'm sure you do too. That the presence of Jesus—it's a chunk of theology. It's a creed. It's not more than that, though. It's not a living and breathing reality. People know that Jesus is close, but again, it's theoretical. It's not experience. Again, maybe this is you. Which is why whenever I use words like fascinated and enamored, they seem a little bit much, right? Like you have to stretch on a good day. You have to stretch to feel fascinated with Jesus. You would have to reach, work hard to be enamored with the gospel. You might think, I like it. I might even love it. But be fascinated with it? That's kind of weird. I don't know. I'm fascinated with things. I've been fascinated and enamored in the past. But the gospel? I don't know if I'm there with you. But listen, without this vivid sense of a present Jesus and a satisfying Jesus, we all will live sleepwalking lives. It will constantly be in and out of sin. Constantly. If Christ is a theological character only to you, you will never be complete. If Christ is just a theological character in your Bible, you will never be whole. You will never be satisfied. You'll always be a puzzle. It will always have missing pieces. Always. And I know that this is where the passage is going to find many of us. Unsatisfied, disintegrated, not whole, fragmented, anxious. And not just that, not that we can't think in long lines in the same direction, but when we do think, we're pondering the wrong things. We're savoring the wrong things. And that makes us very Philippian in that sense. Because Paul, speaking to them, speaking to us, is speaking to people who are sleepwalking. Sleepwalking. But here's the good news for you and me. The gospel's perfect for sleepwalkers. The gospel is perfect for puzzles without pieces. It's perfect for those of us who don't. The gospel is engineered for those who don't have the peace of God. <laughs> the gospel is built for those of us who are fragmented and detached and disconnected. Built for us. This is one of my favorite passages in John 20. You can turn there if you're fast. If not, we'll have it up on the screen for you. We'll splash it up there. In verse 19, we have this great moment. This is after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. And there's a room with disciples in it. And Jesus just shows up. And he says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came. And stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said again to them, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even though I am, or that's how I'm sending you. Okay, what I want you to see in this, because there's a lot, there's 10 sermons in there, believe it or not. I want you to see that there's a link. There's a straight line between the peace given to you and the damage that's found in him. Okay? Twice, he says, peace be to you. But in the, in the middle, he shows the wounds in his hand and the wounds in his side. And that's because one begets the other. It's because of the damage. It's because he was crushed on the cross. It's because he was crucified that he hand delivers peace to a very violent people that don't deserve it. He gives us peace. Right? This little phrase, peace be with you, that is a gospel level declaration. That is not Christ showing up in the midst of the room and saying, Listen, fellas, I was just kind of walking in and the Jews, they're certainly angry and they're looking for you, but they're like nine blocks away and they're getting tired and I think they're going the wrong direction. So you guys can just kind of take a minute, take a deep breath. It's going to be all okay. Just calm down. He's not doing that. This is a cosmic level rest. It's it's a big picture peace be with you. They are safe forever. And the same is true for you and me who are in Christ. He is our God man, our hero, the only one who has ever existed who pondered perfectly, who thought on the right things all the time, who considered the perfect things for the perfect amount of time in the perfect moments. He was perfect in how he handled his mind. I mean, when it, when it was true and just and noble and pure and excellent, as our passage says today, those were the things that our king, our general, our friend, and the firstborn of all, he was consumed with them. He was fascinated with the father. Fascinated, enamored with the plan of the father. And he is the fulfillment of this comprehensive list that we find ourselves in today. That's what that passage is, right? When we read through our passage, it's a list of characteristics. That's why a lot of people rattle through it and then keep moving on because it's just a list of things. what, What to think on. This is the stuff I'm supposed to think on. Stuff that's pure, just, true, excellent. But you need to know that when you read that list, it is Christ personified. Jesus is the fulfillment of that list. Think about it. Whatever is true. You and I, we have a hard time doing that. We sift through claims of truth all the time. Some of them are fake. Some of them are true. Some of it, someone calls their own little personal truth and it happens to be true. Sometimes they call it their own personal little truth and it's absolutely not true. Sometimes truth moves and changes shape depending on the situation. But, and sometimes you even know what is true and you choose what is not true because it's easier. But Christ comes along And he told the truth when it was most inconvenient, and he did so to save a nation of liars. It's perfect in how he handled truth. Perfect in how he handled honor. We struggle with our thoughts being honorable. They could be base. They could be ignoble. As I was saying the other day, I'm okay with a fart joke. Like any other guy around me, right? I'm right there with you. If you're a guy you like fart jokes, I'm with you. But if your life is one continually running fart joke, can we agree that you're probably not fixing your mind on what is honorable, what is noble? And sometimes what comes in and out of our mind is very far from anything that we would hold up and say, this deserves honor. But Christ Suffered an ignoble, dishonorable death for dishonorable people. In fact, if you look at the crucifixion story, not only did he suffer an ignoble death, he was carted outside the city limits and killed and crushed on a hill that was meant for villains. Dishonor. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. This is a comprehensive list of the gospel and of Jesus, the hero of our gospel. And when we set our mind on these things, we are walking alongside and will experience the God of peace. The God of peace. But if we choose instead to be a voyeur in everything that we watch online or whatever we're binging on, if we look around at the people that we hate, we murder them in our hearts, and we savor the moment where we can get revenge, we secretly hope that they get theirs, if we savor it, if we covet what our neighbor has, if we covet who our neighbor's married to, if you're a a happy racist in your headspace, all of these things, you're missing the peace of God. You're missing it. You're not whole. You're not healthy or integrated. An audit is seriously in order. I mean, if you let your mind go wherever it feels like going, as I said earlier, that's what toddlers do. They roam where they want. They say what they want. Whatever comes to their mind comes right out of their mouth. right? They don't put a guard on what they think. They don't put a guard. They don't groom their, their headspace, They don't do any of that. But the gospel for you and me, it's not just the power of salvation. It's the power to reinvent how we think and what we think on. It's powerful for this. I mean, are you where you want to be? Do you enjoy the peace of God? What is it that your mind is thinking on? when it thinks deeply, what does it ponder? Is it pure, noble, commendable? Is it Christ-like? You see, Jesus doesn't just rescue us and make us empty, passive vessels. We're not vacuums, right? When he rescues us, we do have solid work to do and how we fill our minds and fill our hours, and it takes work. It's, it's not a cruise control type of life. I don't know if any of you are here are old enough to have owned a car without cruise control. My first car didn't have cruise control. It was an 84 Datsun Sentra. It didn't have power anything. There was nothing luxurious about that car. It was a miserable car. In fact, if I was going to go on a long road trip, I would get a very heavy textbook or a couple bricks and put it on the gas pedal. Don't judge me. I know that's real unsafe. I'd freak out if my kids did that today, but that's what I did because I just didn't want to use my foot. That's the definition of cruise control, not using your foot, taking your foot off the gas. When I got my first car with cruise control, I wore that thing out because I loved it. But it almost killed me a couple times, right? Late at night, long, straight Texas roads with nothing to break it up, I'd fall asleep. And back then, that was before rumble strips. Your rumble strip in West Texas back in the 90s was gravel and a couple road signs, right? That's when you know you probably need to pull over or go get some sunflower seeds or figure it out, right? But cruise control is by definition taking your foot off of the gas. The gospel never intends for us to cruise. It's it's not a story that leads us to take our foot off of the gas. Being a Christian it does break a sweat. It requires exertion. Not to be saved. Not to be saved. That's exertion that Christ experienced. But to handle all that our mind considers and ponders, that takes exertion. Consistent exertion. I mean, being pure in our minds in an increasingly impure world, being honorable and honoring truth in a world where truth is anything but... Being noble in a society that celebrates sin, listen, that's against the grain, and it takes work. This is what Paul communicates to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Interesting passage right there. It sounds like a lot of work, though. Destroying, taking captive, It doesn't sound like the person is just letting stuff float through their mind unguarded. But this is where we also enjoy the peace of God. In that place where we are grooming even our thoughts. Where we have a thought come in and we stop it and we say, no, no, not today. I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to think about something noble, true, and just. I'm going to think about something that my Lord, my King would have thought about. We take it captive, make it obedient to the gospel. Friends, listen, if you're a Christian in here, there's there's repentance for us. We have to repent for what we've chosen to dwell on, what we think and ponder on. We have repentance for how we've allowed our pace to fragment and split our attention span in 58 different directions. We have room to repent for treating today as if our small little universe is all that there is going on. But here's the best part. As we repent. If you're practicing and you're pondering things that are grotesque, not true, ignoble, not commendable, not excellent. You just take that list that Paul gives us and reverse it. God is not one that you run away from and cleanse your mind so you can come back. God is the one that you run towards. God is the one that you race towards even faster. And you just fall at his feet. And you know what you do then? You thank him for being so unfailing in his love for you. You can smile. You can celebrate his joy over your life. The work is done. The main exertion is finished. You finished it on the cross. I mean, what were you going to do? Were you going to run away and clean yourself and come back clean? He did all of that. He clean, he cleans you. You have the righteousness of Christ. That's good news for you and me. He is perfect. He's perfect for the villain. He's perfect for the, the failure, for the mocker. He knows your thoughts. He knows how scattered you feel. You could thank him for his unfailing love. And if we were to just drill down and get intensely practical over how one grooms their thoughts. I mean, here's the big question, can you catalog what you find yourself dreaming about? I know that even sounds odd, just me saying it. I mean, could you write it down? What are the things that you thought deeply on at the end of the day? What did I dream about today? What did I ponder? What did I meditate on today? Could you catalog them? Could you put a name to them? Put edges and shape to what it is that your mind does? And then maybe ask yourself, why is it that I dream about these things? Why am I pondering these specific things? What are they offering me? What is it bringing me? And maybe another thing that we can do that's intensely practical is what distractions can you cut out that allow you to think deeply and get perspective? I mean, that's going to take some work, right? There's a fascinating book. It's not a Christian book. Um, Cal Newport wrote it. It's called Deep Work, and it just teaches people how to work in a little bit more of a depth. But one of the things he went on, and I did it during my sabbatical too, is he tells you if you were to take one to six months and just take all of the social media off of your devices... I mean, if you want to be weird and delete your accounts, that's fine too. But all he's saying is just take them off your phone. Delete them. And you'd be surprised how many apps on your phone are considered social media. Quite a few. But when you take them off, go without them for five or six months. And then take all the notifications off. No notifications, no constant running streams for you to tap into at any moment. Do it for one month. Do it six months or anywhere in between. These are two things that you'll notice. This is what I noticed. Yes, the world kept spinning. No, it didn't care that I wasn't there anymore. Didn't care. Didn't even notice I was gone. Just kept going. Just kept spinning. And after that time, however long that time is, you've officially detoxed, go back and look at that long set of apps. What could you add that served you instead of you serving it? What did you really need? What did you really need to have? And can you have it without notifications turned on? What this does is it just gives you a fighting chance. That's all. It's just a... Just a quick little strategy to give you a fighting chance. And it is costly. And then maybe, and probably most importantly, can you build time in your schedule to think without being rushed? To think without being rushed. Can you set up a... We would call it a devotional time maybe or a spiritual discipline, whatever your language calls it. A time without a whip cracking at the end of it, something beckoning you to depart. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems in the American, we'll call it a quiet time, is the fact that it's like 20 minutes long and you only know it's 20 minutes. Listen, your brain can't even sit down in 20 minutes, right? It's like when you throw a rock into a pond and it sends ripples, it takes a while for the ripples to go away. And if you try to speed it up, you just make it worse. Some of us, were are failing in our spiritual disciplines, not because we fail in trying to do it. It's because we've not given ourselves enough time. And the time we've given ourselves has a hard stop on the end. Good luck. Good luck. But can you build some time that is not rushed? Not rushed. You have time to think. Time to think deeply. And if you just have time to dream over one passage or one thought, that's fine. If you have time to cover 10, that's fine too but can it not be rushed? Ask yourself deep questions. How is the gospel beautiful to me today? How is the gospel story more fascinating to me now because of the passage I read than it was before? How do I see God differently in this passage? How does Christ stand out in this passage? What is the Holy Spirit communicating to me in this moment? How can I walk forward in the light of what this passage says to me? Can you do these things? Can you think deeply on that level? And then probably the most important thing is can you ask the Lord to open your eyes to be more fascinated with him? That's work of the Holy Spirit. It just sounds like this. God... I want to like you and love you and be fascinated more than I am today. Simply not that fascinated, definitely not enamored, but I know that's work that your Holy Spirit does. Can you make me such? Can you change my heart to where I'm ruined for anything but beholding you, first and foremost? And watch what the Lord does. You pray that from the bottom of your heart often, your God will grow in size, your universe will too. And then finally, listen, if you're in here and you are not close to the Lord, would not call yourself a Christian, you would say that you are far from God, and you feel confident in saying that, I want you to know this passage is not an if-then clause. If you do these things, then God comes. That's the way it could be read if you're not careful with it. The gospel story is where God rescues outlaw and villain and leper and lawyer and prince and prostitute, all despite our exertion, all despite our ability to work really hard and all despite our ability to throw it down and run away. It's grace that employs our salvation because he is so good to us. It's not an if-then clause. But if you hear the Lord beckoning your heart, if you hear him calling to you, changing you, Changing your hearts. And I'm just saying, give, give 100% of yourself to Him. All of your heart, soul, and hear me now, mind. All of your mind as well. And the peace of God will be waiting. And you can experience this peace of God. You can experience the companionship and the depth and the richness of who God is for us. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being so good and so kind to us as your church. Father, I I do not think on things that are true. I do not think on things that are noble and just and pure. I do not think on things that are excellent or commendable. I miss this list by a country mile a lot of times. But I know the good news for me is you did not. You did not. And so because of your solid work, I'm a solid recipient. Because you exerted yourself I get something beautiful. And so, Lord, we, we at least can pick the last thing on this list and fix our minds on something that is beautiful. Think about something that is beautiful, not just creation, not just the mountains or the ocean, but the most beautiful act in the gospel by the most beautiful person who is Christ. That we could think upon that. And then we can ask you to enlarge our hearts to see it with greater scope and deeper depth, with more color, reality to us. That it would be so provocative that we become more enamored tomorrow than we are today and on and on and on. Where all the ways that we looked at you in the past will never be sufficient because you've given us new ways of seeing you and that our minds and our hearts, now that they've been stretched, will not go back to the original shape. That's what we ask for today. That your spirit would change how we see you And Father, that you would give us by the power of your spirit, give us the ability to groom our mind, to destroy things that are false, to take captive things that just float right through our mind and hold them and make them obedient to the very things that you have done. Even today we could say, is this a noble thing to dream about? Why is it that I think about this impure thing? What is it about this not commendable, dishonorable thing makes me think about it so much? And we could wrestle with those things, submit them to you. God, you were so good to us. We pray that you would change our lives today, change our hearts today. So, Father, it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.